Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. It's uh, good to have you guys uh, with us this morning again. My name is Bruce Clark. It's a pleasure to be able to consider God's Word with you uh, this morning. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 77. It's a beautiful psalm in which we see how this particular person uh, deals with stress. The psalms are amazing. At uh, There are an amazing reservoir of... Um, of encounters where we see real people in real struggle encountering a real God. And this morning, uh, I want to uh, specifically address um, the, the reality of stress in our lives. Uh, just even on the best day, often many of us will encounter experience stress, but especially in this time, right, in this time of crisis, Many of you have uh, experienced, many of us have experienced a, a significant increase in the stress in our lives, the uncertainty, uh, the fear, um, the, um, uh, just the ways that our, our current situation has uh, really been, in many ways, uh, unprecedented. And so I think the psalm speaks uh, in a way that is especially uh, relevant for our time. Now, unusually, you'll see, if you're following along in, in the bulletin, you'll see that unusually I have provided uh, my own translation of Psalm 77 for us this morning. And I've done that just to make things a little simpler. The psalm was not the easiest to translate, and you'll find some of the transla- English translations will differ. So again, you don't have to follow along using that particular a translation of mine, but you are, uh, that's the one I'll, I will be preaching from. So before we jump into to consider Psalm 77, let's, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is that you have given us songs, songs that we can share, songs that we can make our own, uh, songs that we can enter into, to know that there are those, there are saints who have gone before us, in the midst of real struggle. Father, when overwhelmed by stress, often stress is greater than our own traumas, uh, encounters, uh, Father, overwhelming burdens. And we, we, can, we can enter not only into their struggle, but we can enter into their, the way that they have communed with you, the way that they have found solace, and uh, the way that they have found comfort uh, in, in who you are and in what you have done. Father, this morning, would you change us from the inside out? Would you overwhelm us with a peace that passes beyond all our understanding? Would you be for us this morning uh, an agent of change in our lives? Father, we know that the stress that we are experiencing, even the destabilization and crisis in our culture is no accident. Father, that indeed you are present within it, that you, your purposes and plans are prevailing through it. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would use this psalm to truly, uh, Father, minister to us, that we might be uh, more faithful to you as your servants. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can remember back when I was in college, I went to a military academy, and I was my final year I was serving as a, a squadron commander. I had about 115 guys under me or so, and uh, I had... And I, I can remember a particular day that I was, I was stressed out. I was really overwhelmed. Most of you know if you've ever led any sort of organization 
or uh, uh, some, uh, I remember it's a corporate context or government context, you know that leadership adds even an additional layer of stress. And often it's very overwhelming. And that, that particular day, I don't remember what the issue was, but I, I was just, it was the end of the day, it was right after dinner, um, and I was, I was just stressed out. I had been, that afternoon, sent out several emails, given several orders that were really quite poor decisions, signaling that I was just, uh, I was maxed out. And right after dinner, actually, I hadn't had dinner. Uh, I had been working through, through the dinner hour, and right, right around 7 o'clock, uh, my three subordinates, the, the, the officers who were just under me, the three flight commanders, knocked on my door, and they and I, I remember barking like what or like what, what is it you want and they opened the door and the three of them were dressed in civilian clothes and they uh one of them looked at me and he said bro he said you have lost sight of the big picture and now it's time to get out of here and they wanted to take me out for the evening just to get some food get some drink and to just get out of the situation now listen to the words that, that my friend said. He said, bro, you've lost sight of the big picture. Think about, think about those words. It implies that you and I can live our lives in a way that doesn't see things accurately at all. And especially in the midst of stress, right? When we are stressed out, we so quickly lose sight of the big picture. But you know, even as we use that phrase, Maybe we should stop and just ask, is there really a bigger picture? Is there a larger story? About 15 years ago, a movie came out. It was called About a, Bo- About a Boy. And uh, it was based on a book with starring Hugh Grant. And Hugh Grant plays a single guy named Will. And Will is a trust fund baby. He has riches and absolutely no responsibility. And through some very funny situations, Will um, meets a 12-year-old boy. And this boy latches himself onto Will, and he brings along with him all his problems. And he requests that Will help him out. And not only help him out, but help out his single mom. And how does this single guy, uh, Will, how does this guy with all these riches and no responsibility, how does he respond well, he says, he says a particular point in the movie, he says, the thing is, a person's life is like a TV show. He said, I am the star of the Will Show. And the Will Show isn't an ensemble drama. Guests may come and go, but I am the regular. It comes down to me and to me alone. So do you see? We each have our own story, our own show, and that's it. There's no bigger picture. There's no greater story in which we find ourselves. And so, as he says, Will says, it comes down to me and me alone. Um, There was a Notre Dame, recent Notre Dame undergraduate student who wrote these words, I thought they were very insightful, saying very much the similar thing. She she writes, quote, the only person that we can rely upon is ourself. The only way we can avoid failure, being let down, and ultimately succumbing to the chaotic world around us, therefore, is to have the means, that is the, the financial security, to rely only upon ourselves. 
And really, I think in many ways, this is the defining question of our time. And I think it's very much on our minds in a particular time as such as this. And the question is this, are our lives simply independent episodes in which I'm the star? Or, or are our lives actually part of a bigger story, a bigger epic? That is to say, are our lives simply independent episodes or actually something part of a much bigger epic? And I want to make that contrast throughout the sermon this morning. Is there, is, are our lives a simple episode or are they part of a sweeping epic? Now, this question has everything to do with stress. I mean everything to do with stress. It may, may be fun and even flattering to see ourselves as the star of our own show. But remember what, what Will says in the movie. He says, this means that in life, what does he say? It comes down to me and me alone. In fact, he continues later in the movie, he, Will says, if Marcus, he said, the boy's name is Marcus, and he says, if Marcus's mom couldn't manage her own show, if, if her ratings were falling, it was sad, but that was her problem. So the idea is simple, that if we see our lives as there's my episode and your episode, and they're independent of one another, there's nothing bigger, there is a sense in which it all comes down to me and me alone, and that, that may be at, at first exciting, but it also may be incredibly overwhelming. That is to say, it may be incredibly stressful. And we see this, uh, we see this actually in our youth today. If you look at some of the, a lot of the literature that's been done on students in junior high, high school, and college, they are under unprecedented amounts of anxiety and stress. In fact, recently a Time Magazine article came out, and, and there's one comment by a high school counselor, and he was commenting on his students' lives and, and, and the stress that they have, the anxiety that they're under, and he says this. He says, at no point do these students get the opportunity to remove themselves from their stressful situation and gain perspective. He's saying, look, there's at no point are these students able to somehow regain or get a hold of what might be a bigger picture. So that's the question. Are, is there a bigger picture? Are our lives simply just episodes, merely simple episodes? Or is there something bigger, a bigger picture, a sweeping epic? Of course, Christianity offers a decisive answer to that. And yet even as Christians, I think as, as Christians, we, we, we really are part, we're, we're children of our time. As Christians, we can continue to live our lives as individual episodes. And when we do so, it deeply hinders our relationship with God. And we're going to see that in this, in this psalm this morning. We get stressed. We get depressed. And here's the thing. We go to God. We go to God. But it doesn't do anything. Have you ever experienced that before? You're overwhelmed, you're stressed out, you're anxious, you're fearful, and you go to God, you, you share with him, you talk to him, you ask him for help, and it feels like nothing happens. And that's exactly the experience that the psalmist has in Psalm 77. He knows exactly what it's like to go to God and experience nothing in return. 
Now, what I want to do this morning is rather than read Psalm 77 all the way through, I'm just simply going to take it section by section. So he starts off in verse 1, he starts off by saying, he says, basically to summarize it, he says, for crying out loud, I'm so stressed, I'm inconsolable. I'm inconsolable. Those of you kids, you know what the word inconsolable means. It means you can't be comforted. There's no way that somehow you can, you're stressed out, you're anxious, you're upset, and there's no way that you can be brought to a place of peace. You know, we just, those of you, most of you know that we just had a little baby boy and it hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure there will come a time when he will be screaming, crying, upset, just like all little, little ones do, and he will be inconsolable. No matter what you do, holding him, feeding him, whatever it might be, he will be inconsolable. And that's what the psalmist is. He's at this place where he wants to say, for crying out loud, I'm so stressed out, I'm inconsolable. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, I have been crying out. Uh, I'm sorry, he's, he says, I have been crying out loud to God. Yes, out loud to God, so that he might attend to me. That is, so that he might give me some attention, so that he might listen and hear from me. Again, notice he says, I've been crying out loud. There's a verbal engagement. There's an audible engagement with God. He continues, verse 2, since the day of my distress, there's the key word, the day of my distress, the Hebrew here is this notion that the word for distress implies this idea of pressure, of being in a pressure cooker, being so crushed, so constrained, being overwhelmed. The idea of stress, since the, since the day of my distress, I have been seeking the Lord. So there's been this constant uh, a vocal interaction that he's had ever since he has been under this tremendous uh, stress. He continues, in the night, my hands have been outstretched tirelessly. And then he says, but my soul refuses to be comforted. Isn't that amazing? He says, I have been, for crying out loud, I have been crying out loud to God endlessly. I'm so stressed, and yet I, I'm, I'm, I'm inconsolable. My soul refuses to be comforted. Do you see the problem? Again, the psalmist is saying, for crying out loud, I'm so stressed, I'm inconsolable. See, then he explains, he, he unpacks how it is that his personal time with God is a complete disaster. Isn't this amazing that we find this in the psalms? We actually find the psalmist saying, look, I go to God and nothing, nothing good's coming from it. It actually accounts. So if, if that's your experience as a Christian, you may say, oh, I'm not the first one. The, the Psalms have actually given us words here to actually speak about that experience. The psalmist takes his stress to God, but things seem to just get worse. In fact, his conversations with God, end, uh, they end in, listen to this, they end in sighing, they end in a cynical surrender. They end in him feeling sleepless, speechless, and stuck in the past. Look, listen to these verses. Look at verses three through five. We see all of these elements, just one after another. Verse three through five says, whenever I think about God, I just groan. What a statement. Isn't it amazing? Amazing you find in the Bible. You know, some of your translations may, may, may say, I remember and the word remember, it's a fair translation, but really the Hebrew word has to do with the idea of focusing in on, concentrating in on, calling to one's mind. 
And so I translate, whenever I think about God, whenever I decide to focus and consider, give real thought to God, he says, I just groan, I just sigh. I muse, I brood, if you will. He says, I muse or brood and my spirit grows faint. That is to say, there's this cynical surrender. My spirit has to do with my motivation. My motivation just, just, wow, it just drains away. Verse four, he says, you, you have kept my eyes wide open. See, he's sleepless. The sighing, the surrender, the sleeplessness. He continues, I've been feeling so troubled that I can't talk about it. He's speechless. Have you ever been in a place like that? You're so stressed. You're so overwhelmed. You can't even get the words out. You're just so done. Why bother even giving voice to it? He continues in verse five, I've been mulling over, I've been mulling over days gone by thinking about them. I've been mulling over the years long before. See, not only is he sighing, and not only is there a surrender, a sleeplessness, a speechlessness, there's also a sense in which he is stuck in the past. He's stuck in the past. I've been mulling over the days gone by, the years long before. Now imagine that. I don't know how many of you have, have had that. You, there are times when you, we, we retreat and we begin to think about our lives, the, the years, the decades that have gone by. And it's just sour. It's just brutal. It's bitter. It's hard. We're just stressed out. Now notice, especially here in verse 5, what's he mulling over? This is very important. He's thinking about his own personal past, his own story, his own episode. And all of that mulling over, all of that thinking about his own personal life, none of it is helping Let me ask you, Christian, can you relate to this? Can you relate to this sighing, the cynical surrender? Can you relate to the speechlessness, the sense of, you know, I'm just, I I don't even want to talk about it. Can you relate to the sleepless nights? Can you relate to being stuck in the past? The psalmist is saying, for crying out loud, I'm so stressed, I'm inconsolable. So the question, of course, is what does he do? What does he do about it? Well, listen, this is what he does. I think this is highly instructive. He gets very self-suspicious, very self-suspicious. In fact, each night he's stressed out and and it's the same old song again and again and he's tired of it. He's tired of the sleeplessness. He's tired of the same thoughts going through his mind again. And so he says, I'm going to think, or I'm sorry, or may even say, I'm going to rethink my song the same old song, I'm going to rethink that. And he, he steps back and he says, you know, what am I really saying? Let's, 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 let's investigate this more. And he, just, he, discovers, he discovers he's been singing. Are you ready for this? He's been singing a song of self-pity. A song that makes God out to be the enemy. He, he, it's a song that says that God has forsaken him and is no longer faithful or forgiving. Look at verses six through nine. Verse six, he's, I, and here's this, I, this phrase, I will remember, I will think about, I will focus on, I'll, I'll re- give real serious consideration or reconsideration to my song in the night. I will muse, I'll muse with my heart and my spirit will inquire. Now he begins to ask these questions. Now listen to these questions in verse seven. He says, verses seven, eight, and nine, he says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never, will he never again be pleased with me? 
Has his unfailing love ceased forever? Have his words failed for all time? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious or in anger turned, turned off his compassion? Do you see that? Will the Lord reject forever? It's like, has he not? Has he not? Has he forsaken me? Is he finished with me? Finished with me forever. In fact, the Hebrew here it says is beautiful. He says, I, he said, uh, will the Lord reject me forever? The word forever is actually plural. It's a, what's called a plural of intensity. Has he, is he, has the Lord rejected me forevers? Right? I don't know how many of you, especially um, in times of distress, we just feel that things are lasting forever, right? We might say, this quarantine has been going on forever. Or like sometimes my teenage daughters will say, dad, this has been forever. We're waiting and it feels like forever. The sense that God will reject us forever, that we will be in a difficult, a, a, a really poor relationship with God forever. So he says, he says, basically, he asks these questions. Has God forsaken him? Is he no longer faithful? Is he no longer forgiving? Now the psalmist is rethinking, listen to this, this is important. The psalmist is rethinking his own song of self-pity. And he finds accusations against God that can't possibly be true. It can't possibly be true. So, he, so what he's doing here, he's actually vocalizing. He's actually giving words to his stress, words to what's going on underneath. And we can actually look at these words, and these questions are, are, are intended by the psalmist to reveal what can't possibly be the case. Will the Lord reject forever? Of course not. Lamentations 3.31 says, no one, no one is rejected by the Lord forever. Isn't that beautiful? No one is rejected by the Lord forever. In, 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 in contrast to the question, has his, unla- has his unfailing love ceased forever? We know that at least 44 times in the Old Testament, we hear the words, his unfailing love endures forever. Isn't that beautiful? In fact, there's, there's an implicit contradiction in the very question. Has his unfailing love ceased forever? It's like, what do you mean if it's unfailing? How could it possibly cease has God forgotten to be gracious or in anger turned off his compassion? Of course, Exodus 34 makes it clear that, that, that he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. In fact, God's grace and compassion, listen to this, God's grace and his compassion are his default settings. They are essential to who he is. Christian, hear these words. God forgetting to be gracious is like you or me forgetting to breathe. It's like a duck forgetting how to quack. Grace and compassion are to God what apples are to apple pie. You with me? So again, the psalmist is rethinking his own song of self-pity in, in the night, and, and, he, and he, in reconsidering it, he finds accusations against God that can't possibly be true. Now listen, hear me share from my own story. I am so good at self-pity. Because self-pity is this, this amazing sort of, um, I can kind of keep my moral high ground. 
It's a way of expressing a lot of anger. It's a way of expressing a lot of ingratitude. It's a way of expressing um, just a, a, a sense of victimization, all in a way that is, um, that is very, um, very socially acceptable, very bulletproof. I love to sit and sip my self-pity soup. Right? That's what we do. It's all about me. It's all about my own episode, my own story. And now as I've gotten older, I've come to master, you know, that's my family, I've come to master the art of brooding. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary defines brooding as, quote, thinking deeply about something that makes one unhappy, angry, or worried. Synonyms include agonizing over, moping over, languishing over, sulking about, ruminating on, or ruminating over, turning over in one's mind, I can often be like a computer that's, you know, it's, it's caught in thinking, like the hourglass is turning or the pinwheel is spinning. Or it's like a web browser when it's trying to load a website. I'm totally, in, in, in those moments where I'm brooding, I'm totally inaccessible to my wife and kids. They'll be talking to me, they'll be asking me questions, and I don't even know it. They're like, Dad, huh, Dad, are you there? Now, underlying this self-pity this is very important. Underlying the self-pity in my life are some deep accusations against God. But they stay under the surface. And it's there under the surface that they are the most dangerous. And the psalmist knows this. So in, in this amazingly courageous act of humility and, and an act of honesty, he exposes these accusations. I'm sorry, he, he, ex, he expresses those accusations so as to expose them. Did you get that? He expresses those, uh, those accusations. He gives voice to them in order to expose them for what they really are. Proverbs 19.3 says that a man's own folly ruins his life, but his heart rages against the Lord. And the psalmist knows he's under stress. He goes to God, nothing happens, and he's just angry. And he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give thought to my song of self-pity in the night, and I'm going to expose it for what it is. I'm going to show that actually I have, I'm making these outrageous accusations against God. I can remember again, back to my, my academy days, as a senior, I was overseeing uh, some, some brand new recruits to the academy and then we refer to them as basic cadets and that particular day that these basic cadets has got, had gone through what was called the assault course and it's typical of what you would see in movies you know you crawl through mud and you get your your gun and you're going through barbed wire and it's just kind of a it's loud there's explosions and and you hear you know you hear guns um you know being fired and uh, i'll never forget it was it was the day was almost over we were having dinner and one of the basic cadets um, she, she paused her meal and she asked me a question. And she said, uh, she said, uh, um, Cadet Clark, um, are those on the, uh, on the assault course today, were they shooting real bullets at us? And in the chow hall, suddenly it was completely silent. And immediately several of the upperclassmen who were my subordinates, some of the upperclassmen like they jumped out of their seats and they were on her like white on rice to say, you know, look, basic, do you really think that your commander would put you in that kind of danger? 
these, this, this accusation of, were, the, were those real bullets they were firing at us? And, I, and there was this pause, and I said, um, and I chuckled, and I said, and understand the context here as a, as a, as a, as a drill instructor. I said, that's right, G.I. Jill. Uncle Sam is spending a quarter million dollars on you. Why? So that they can just kill you in basic cadet training. And, and, and then and, uh, and there was this, this very awkward pause. And then she admitted, she said, that last night she wrote a letter to her parents saying that they were shooting real, real bullets at her. <laughs> so, and I, I informed her, I said, well, tonight you will be writing another letter to your parents. Because what often happens is the cadets, these base cadets would complain to their parents, and their parents, of course, would call whom? Like their senator or representative, and things would, uh, things would get interesting after that. So, of course, she had to rewrite her letter. Now, that's what we do, though, but that's us. God has spent so much. He has not spared his own son, and yet we are accusing him of actually putting us in harm's way. We're accusing him of not caring, of apathy, and even being, you know, capricious, even being uh, out to get us in some way. So the key point is this. When stressed, when you and I are stressed, we are to expose our self-pity to expose it for what it is. And what it is is slander of God. It is slander of God. Now look, there are, let me just as a way of application, let me show you how I actually do this in my life. There are some rather silly verses that I meditate on most every morning, right? And these, but actually these, these verses are very, very helpful um, and very much in line with what the psalmist is doing here. Listen, for example, I've shared this before. I'm, almost every morning I meditate on, on Genesis 42, 36, where Jacob is in, a, um, um, uh, in, in tremendous distress, and he, he yells out, everything is against me. And that's how I often feel. I read that verse, I meditate on, on it, because that's how I feel. And yet, if you've read the story of Joseph, you know that nothing could be further from the truth or Exodus 5, verse 23, Moses says, you have not rescued your people at all. That's how I often feel. I think, you know what? God has not, I look around at the church, look at our ministry, I think, you know, God isn't doing anything. And of course, if you know the story of Exodus, you know that it's exactly the opposite. It's the Exodus where God rescues his people. I, meditate on, I also meditate on Exodus 16, verse 3. The Israelites are in the wilderness and they're grumbling and they say, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Right? That's what they're saying. If only we had died in Egypt. And they continue, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Right? What a great memory of, of, of life in Egypt, right? And finally, Deuteronomy 1.27, it says, The Lord hates us. Again, these are the Israelites speaking. The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. I mean, what kind of logic is that? I meditate on these because they reveal, they reveal the self-pity for what it is. It's slander against God. Now listen to this. When we, when we expose our self-pity, we'll get, we get to the real problem. We are utterly absorbed in our own little episode. That's so important. And when, we, and when we are there, when we are absorbed in our own little show, I actually begin to think that God has changed. Look at verse 10. Again, this is from my translation. And then I said, this 
This is it comes to this conclusion. He has this aha moment. He says, this is what's ailing me. The idea that the right hand, that is the power of the Most High, has changed. The psalmist says, I see the problem now. I actually think that God cha- has changed how he acts. He's not who he used to be. Isn't that crazy? He, the psalmist is saying, I actually think that God has become small and stupid. I mean, God used to be awesome, but now he's dumb. That's how we think. But of course, if that's the problem, what's the solution? The solution is to escape our own simple episode and enter into his sweeping epic. The idea is simple. When stressed, expose your self-pity for the slander that it is. Expose your self-pity and enter into his story. That's the summary. When stressed, expose your self-pity and enter into his story. So, I mean, into his story. Now, how does the psalmist do that? Well, look in verses 11 and 12. He says, I will make myself think about the acts of the Lord. Indeed, I will think about your wonders from long ago. I will meditate upon all your deeds and muse upon your actions. See, how do we get to know God? How do we enter into his story? It's through his actions. It's through his actions that are game-changing, actions that reveal that there's no one like him. Look in verses 13 and 14. He writes, God, your way is holy. That is to say, there's no one like you. What God is as great as our God? You are a God who performs wonders, causing your strength to be known among the peoples. See, God's actions I've used this illustration before. God's actions are like, are like drawing a sorry card. How many of you have played the game of sorry? Right? Where he, you, you, when, you, when you draw that card, that sorry card, no matter wh- how, where you are in the game, if you are losing completely, that sorry card that you draw can be a game changer. You can go from being the very last in place to being the very first in place just like that. It's a game changer, and God's actions are very much like that. The specific mighty act, now listen, in the psalm here, the specific mighty act of God that the psalmist chooses to focus on is the Red Sea crossing. So in verses 13 through 20, what we get is something like a a movie trailer of the Red Sea event, revealing a God who is, are you ready for this? A God who is matchless, marvelous, missional, mighty to save, most sly, and merciful. Look at verses 13 through 20. It's just it's unbelievable. God, your way is holy. What God is as great as our God? He's matchless. He has no rival, no competitor. He continues, he's marvelous. You are a God who performs wonders, right? Wonders, that God does things where we stop, we, we, we ask, wait a minute, how, how did he do that? You are God who performs wonders, causing your strength to be known among the peoples. Isn't that beautiful? He's missional. Think about this. Think about the gods of the ancient Near East. Think about the Egyptian god Ra, the Philistine god Baal, the, 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 the Babylonian god Bel, the Greek god Zeus. Who worships those gods today? Have they made themselves known among the peoples? No. But who worships the god of these, of these tiny little people group? The Israelites. Well, it's the largest, it's the largest religion in the world today. It's the most geographically and culturally diverse religion in the world today. You are a God who performs wonders, causing your strength to be known among the peoples. With a mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. He's mighty to save persons like Jacob's who are jerks and Joseph's 
who are injured. Verse 16, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and were freaking out. Indeed, the very depths were shaking. That is to say that God is mightier than the seas and the storms. He's mightier than the forces of chaos, economic, political, social chaos, public health chaos. He is mightier than the, stor- than, than, no, than the waters. Verse 17, the clouds poured out water. The, storms cl- the storm clouds roared with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The roar of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning flashes lit up the world. The earth shook and was quaking. And the whole point here is that God is manipulating the storm. Get this. He's manipulating the storm. He's manipulating the seas to do what? To fulfill his schemes. To fulfill his strategies. That God is presently using the chaos of this public health disaster crisis. What to do what? To accomplish his schemes, his purposes. Verse 19, this is so awesome. Your way was through the sea. It was in the sea. Your path was in the mighty waters, though your footprints were not discerned. Isn't that beautiful? His path was undiscerned. No one saw it coming. He is most sly. No one sees what God is about to do. He's always doing something new, something unexpected. He's fulfilling his purposes. We say, oh, I didn't see that coming. That's just like God. Listen, let me ask you, in the midst of this crisis, are you, asking, are you expecting God to act in sly and shrewd ways? And then finally, the psalmist celebrates his mercy. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What a beautiful picture of God as a shepherd, gently, tenderly leading his little ones through this mighty, uh, this mighty, uh, this dry path with the mighty waters on both sides. What a beautiful picture! Again, when the when the psalmist is stressed, he exposes his self pity as slander against God, and he escapes his little episode and enters into God's sweeping epic. So let me just briefly reply this. First thing that we need to do, this, 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 this psalm calls us to do, is to repent. It's to repent of a pride that insists that we have our lives figured out. I should always be able to make sense of everything that's going on in my life. If, if life really is an epic, if life really is this sweeping, amazing adventure, how much of it are you really going to understand? Think about those of you who you've read, say, the Tolkien books, or you've, you've read these amazing sci-fi or adventure stories, these sweeping epics, multi-volume epics. How often do you know exactly what's going on? It's overwhelming. How, how often in the midst of watching the Star Wars trilogy, we understand exactly what's going on? No, we don't. That's the whole, that's the whole joy of it, actually. And we, we, but we, well, that's what we do in our pride. We expect to have our lives figured out. Brothers and sisters, Your life isn't a 20-minute episode. Amen. Hallelujah. Just because you and I can't make sense of something, it doesn't mean that there's no sense in it. Listen, now let me just, again, just confess here. You know, by God's grace, God's given me a good amount of wisdom. It's the ability, it's it's, it's the gift, it's the strength. Wisdom is this ability to figure life out, to see God's hand in it. But of course, our strengths can often be our greatest weaknesses. 
See, the idea is this. With wisdom, I can so often see what God's up to. I can see his fingerprints in a situation. But of course, my wisdom has limits. <gasps> right? It has limits. So that, when there, so that when there are times in which I simply can't see what God is up to, instead of concluding that my wisdom is limited, so shocking, surprise, I conclude that God isn't present. That nothing good will come from this. I give up, and then I give in. So the first thing the psalmist is calling us to do is to repent of a pride that demands that we understand everything. Second, we are to lean on his game-changing actions and unparalleled expertise. We're to lean, we're to expect God to act in game-changing ways, that he's up to things. We're to believe, we're to lean into that. How are we doing that? Are you expecting, in the midst of this crisis, are you expecting God to do marvelous things? Are you, are you praying, are you looking out for him to do beautiful things in the midst of this brutal time? Third, we're to believe that God will provide in unexpected and unanticipated ways. You know, I see that so often in ministry, that God provides you know, so often that God will do amazing things in the church. He'll do, he'll bring new people or he'll, people will profess faith. He'll do that while I'm on vacation. Just as a reminder to me to say, you know, Bruce, I really, really don't need you. Are we expecting God to act in beautiful and unanticipated ways? Let me conclude with this. It's in the life of Jesus that we see God do exactly this. And we see it so beautifully in, 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 uh, in the Gospel of Mark. We read the story of where Jesus is with his disciples. They're in a boat. He's exhausted. He's sleeping. And this, this storm at sea comes up. And again, these are experienced fishermen, but the waves break over the boat, and it's nearly swamped. And we, it's, it's amazing. Jesus is asleep at the wheel, if you will. His disciples wake him, and they say something that is so similar to what the psalmists say. They say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I realize you've come down, you've come to earth, you hear, you've, he, you've raised the dead, you've healed the sick. You've given us ears that hear. You've done all of this for us. You've told us that you're going to go and lay down your life. But you don't care if we drown. And of course, Jesus gets up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. And then the wind dies down and it's completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so stressed out? Do you still have no faith? And it's then the disciples, they realize that they had underestimated who is in the boat with them. That he is an agent of God's power, of God's faithfulness, of God's mercy, like they had never seen before. They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of the Father and that he, even now, the storm of this public health crisis is very much, is very much under his control. Do you believe that not even a hair of your head can fall to the ground apart from his will? Are you seeing your current stresses, your current worries? Are you seeing this whole current crisis not as some individual episode in your life, but as a small chapter 
in a massive, sweeping, and glorious epic in which our God has acted decisively, finally, in a way that ensures that you and I have an inheritance in a new heavens and a new earth. Brothers and sisters, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with what joy, with what joy we read this psalm, with what joy we, we discern that our lives are far more meaningful than a, a simple 20-minute sitcom. Father, I, we, just, we, we ask that you would give us a, a, a deep, a deep insight into the wonder of your story. Help us to see your fingerprints. And Father, when we can't, Father, may we delight to trust in you. Father, would we take our stresses, our fears, would we name them? Would you help us to expose them for what they are? Help us to see our self-pity. Father, help us to discern and enter in and embrace your sweeping epic. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.